You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Tonight, it's my distinct honor to introduce to you the Right Reverend Professor Nicholas Thomas Wright. Tom is arguably the world's premier New Testament scholar and one of the best theologians of our time. As most of you know, Tom is a prolific author, having written more than 80 books. Many of these bridge both academic and church readership, such as Simply Christian, Simply Jesus, Surprised by Hope, After You Believe, New Testament for Everyone commentary series, God in the Pandemic, The Challenge of Jesus, Scripture and the Authority of God, The Day the Revolution Began, Paul, a biography. Read it. <laughs> signpost, broken signpost, how Christianity makes sense of the world. And this little book I love on the, on the Eucharist, the meal Jesus gave us, Understanding Holy Communion. Many of Tom's more popular books came from his more academic work. You'll know some of his works, the four books in the Christian Origin and the Question of God series. Of course, the first one being Jesus and the Victory of God. He wrote books, The Climax of the Covenant, The New Testament in Its World, and a a fresh commentary on Galatians. His son Oliver, who is now studying to get a PhD at Oxford, recently compiled a daily reader of some of Tom's most intriguing thoughts in On Earth as in Heaven, Daily Wisdom for 21st Century Christians. Tom has taught extensively in academic settings McGill University, University of St. Andrews, Hebrew University in Jerusalem, University of Cambridge, and of course the University of Oxford, where he received all of his formal education and is currently serving as a senior research fellow at Wycliffe Hall, an evangelical Anglican college in the heart of Oxford. Tom has served Christ Church in a variety of ways. As president of an undergraduate Oxford Intercollegiate Christian Union, chaplaincy in colleges at Oxford and Cambridge, Dean of Litchfield, Canon Theologian of Westminster Abbey, and Bishop of Durham. He has exceeded ministry through vast public lecturing and Bible exposition and has developed online courses within the last nine or so years at ntwriteonline.org. All in all, Tom has contributed a tremendous amount of energy and devotion to Christ in his church in a variety of different venues. On this occasion of Tom's visit, I've known him for more than 25 years. Uh, He visited the seminary in 1996 when I was an MDiv student. I still remember him lecturing on 4QMMT as he was getting uh, off on justification, Paul and justification and those kinds of things. And he's come back in 1999 and 2007. And it's a delight to have him back this week at the seminary and at the university. Again and again, I hear people say things like, N.T. Wright helped me understand better that history matters and the Christian faith is rooted in events that actually took place, that theology matters, that the scripture is fundamentally a revelation of the person of God whom we can know, that we can know the truth with reasonable certainty, that hyper-skepticism is unwarranted, 
that Jesus achieved the victory of God on the cross, that justification needs to be reexamined in light of the Scriptures, that the Apostle Paul never stopped thinking like a first-century Jew, that eschatology affects us every day of our lives, and that the new age of God's saving work and His new creation has begun. We have learned from him that scholarship at the highest order belongs in the church, that academics need Christ as well, that the church offers real hope to the world on the other side of the empty tomb, and that the church has a mission in the world which must be rethought in terms of Scripture. Thomas modeled for us that Christians can and should be ecumenical and Catholic while not sacrificing our evangelical and gospel-focused, rooted in the Holy Scripture. He's a Christian gentleman of the highest order, and you will find his words prayerful, thoughtful, and wise as you attentively listen to him. In a world filled with prideful, horn-tooting academics, writers, and dare I say it, church leaders, I have found Tom and his work so very refreshing and full of grace and humility. He has been hard at work while with us. This is his fourth engagement just today. And so I would invite you to please join me in welcoming Tom Wright tonight as we reconsider the mission of the church for our time. Thank you you so much. Good to be with you all. Uh, I don't know if I can see you in the front row if I do that. This is an unusual thing for me to be doing. Normally, I love standing up to lecture, but my knees have been giving way through arthritis brought on by COVID, or at least accentuated by COVID. So forgive me if I stay seated. Of course, this is the first century custom. If this was a first century audience, you would all be standing up, and I would be the one who was sitting. But I won't require that of you, even though I do believe in verisimilitude. There we are. Anyway. It's very good to be with you and to share some reflections about the church and its mission. And of course, that's far too wide a topic to treat in any detail. And anyway, in the main lectures that I'm doing here at Asbury, the final lecture tomorrow morning is going to be approaching similar topics, but from a different angle. There will be some other overlaps as well, and I hope it may help to come back over various points in a different key. But tonight, I want to focus on the great first-century missionary document we call the Acts of the Apostles and see what there may be for us to learn today. Tomorrow I'll be mostly dealing with Paul. We could do many more sessions covering many more authors. But I hope these lectures will be enough to display the often forgotten inner dynamic of the church's mission and to offer some reflections on how this might encourage us today. I've been asked, obviously, to think in this session particularly as an Anglican, which is a little tricky since, uh, having lived in that skin all my life, um, it's rather odd to stand outside it and look in. But there's an old saying which we love in England, which is that Anglicans don't have any doctrine of their own. It's merely that if something is true, Anglicans believe it. And when it comes to mission, I'm not sure that there is one specifically Anglican approach. We tend to be eclectic, though sometimes with a tendency towards a notion of incarnational presence, living and worshipping within a community and enabling the church community to be salt and light where they are. We'll come back to that. But of course, classically, Anglicans begin with Scripture. 
it's very noticeable if you do ecumenical work how different churches start. Um, I've done a lot of work between Anglicans and Roman Catholics, and of course, whatever the topic, the average Roman Catholic interlocutor will start with what the Pope said last week and work back slowly to Vatican II, go back from there eventually to the Council of Trent, and then to the Fathers without Aquinas, and you may get to the Bible in the end, and then it's all biblical, isn't it? I, I don't want to caricature, I've done this so often, and I think my Catholic friends would say, yeah, that's how we do it. But Anglicans classically start with the Bible and the Fathers, and since I know more about the Bible than the Fathers, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm going to stay mostly in the first half of Acts, though towards the end of this talk, I will move to what seem to be rather significant points in the second half. Acts is, of course, a page-turner. And the trouble with page-turners is that we so enjoy each episode that we don't always notice the larger picture. It's easy to be fascinated by the travels and adventures of Peter and Paul and the rest, while feeling it's actually a bit remote. Most of us are unlikely to undertake that kind of trip or face those particular challenges. And it may then feel hard to translate the story into our own time, except in the most general terms of prayer and fellowship and the leading of the Spirit and the proclamation of Jesus, issuing one hopes in conversions and issuing one fears in persecutions. But when we look at the larger picture of Acts, things start to emerge which I think give a bit more depth. The whole story is about the kingdom of God. Anglicans have tended to talk about the kingdom of God a bit more than some other Christians have. The phrase kingdom of God doesn't occur very often in Acts, a mere eight times in 28 chapters, but there are two right at the start and two right at the end which give us the clue and which anchor us in territory which I think is familiar to many Anglicans. And that's why I've entitled this lecture, Working Towards God's Future, because in Acts, we see the kingdom as both future and present. And that's typical of the New Testament as a whole, the idea of a kingdom which is now and not yet. Because the events of Jesus' death and resurrection, and then the gift of the Spirit, mean that the new world has opened up before Jesus' followers. New creation has begun to happen. But the old world is still rumbling on and doesn't take kindly to the suggestion of new life bubbling up nearby. So with God's full and final kingdom as the ultimate promised horizon, the church is tasked and equipped with making that future a reality in the present in whatever ways may be possible. This is summed up in the famous question and answer in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. The disciples ask Jesus, is this the time when you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, the thing is, the, the, the disciples are still in shock after Jesus' death and resurrection. This is totally not what they've been expecting. How on earth does this relate to the great biblical promises which they've been living on of Israel's restoration? with the nations coming to pay homage to Israel's God, and so on. Jesus' reply, as often, is a tease. He says, not your place to know times or seasons. The Father has reserved that for himself. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. 
What did he mean? Some have supposed that he meant no, but, in other words, no, this isn't the time for the kingdom to be restored, but you've got a job to do until then. I am convinced, though, and perhaps this is a classic Anglican position, I didn't check that out before I left home, but I suspect it is, that Jesus meant yes, but. Yes, this is the time of the kingdom, but no, it won't look like you had imagined the coming of God's kingdom would as exactly with Jesus' parables, where Jesus is constantly saying, yes, but, yes, the kingdom is here, the seeds are being planted, but watch out because when they grow up, some will be choked by thorns and some will be eaten by birds and there will be a crop, but it'll be at a cost and so on. There's an ongoing lesson there, by the way, for all forms of ministry. You see, Jesus' contemporaries faced with the question of the kingdom would most likely have thought in terms of some kind of military conquest. I've sometimes seen books on acts which cast it in that way. Uh, I had one on my shelf ages ago called The Church Marches In with a picture of um, Christ the Conqueror at the head of um, onward Christian soldiers kind of picture. I don't think we would publish a book like that now, but that was one way of looking at it. But you see, in terms of military conquest, the Jews of Jesus' day looked back to the Maccabean period, great military conquest then, beating the Syrians. And a hundred years after Jesus, Simeon ben Kozibar, the last of the great messiahs of the period, would-be messiahs, established a small free Jewish state by force of arms and defended it, claiming on his coins that this really was the beginning of God's kingdom. Until after three years, the Romans came and did what they always did. That was the end of that. But that episode and others like it shows what people were thinking. What would it look like when God became king? Well, they thought it would look like a wonderful victory for God's anointed over the old pagan enemies. Perhaps the disciples thought after Jesus had been raised from the dead, he was now going to tell them that it was time for him to lead them in victory over the Romans and everyone else. Well, to that again, the answer was certainly yes, but the victory was of a totally different sort. Acts is written to describe what that victory actually looked like then and looks like still today. You see, the question of the kingdom then as now is, what does it look like? when God becomes king. When I was Bishop of Durham, I used to play a trick sometimes in parishes. I would say in a parish meeting or whatever, supposing God was in charge of this town, what would change? Which is actually quite a scary question. I sometimes ask that in youth groups. If God was running this youth group, what would be different? And some wag would say we'd have better coffee or, or the, um, <laughs> our football team would win or something like that. But actually that, that's the teasing question. And the, quest, the answer to the question tells you something about who people think God is. Well, anyway, Jesus in his public career had been going around doing things which said, this is what it looks like, and explaining that in parables which challenged the listeners not to give up the hope of the kingdom, but to change their view of how it would come. Then as now, people did imagine that if God really took his power and reigned, he would sweep all opposition off the board and set up a brand new kingdom, a perfect kingdom uh, as a result. 
But Jesus' own actions and his parables told a different story, and Acts builds on that. The way God became king was through the mission of the Son, and the mission of the Son was to seek and to save the lost all the way to dying the death of the cross. And as the Sermon on the Mount makes clear, I've said this again and again in various books, so you may have heard me say this before, when God wants to establish his kingdom on earth as in heaven, he doesn't send in the tanks as many might want him to do. He sends in, think of the Sermon on the Mount, the poor, the meek, the pure in heart, the mourners, the hungry for justice people. And by the time the big power brokers have woken up, the meek and the mourners have been looking after the poor, providing healing for the sick and teaching for the simple, living in purity of heart and prayer. And a whole new world has opened up the like of which neither Caesar nor Herod had ever dreamed of. And if that was the story of the Gospels, it is just as much the story of Acts. And actually, it's very much the story of worldwide Anglican mission in the last few centuries. Certainly, it's the story which we need to recapture at the heart of our own understanding of God's call to mission today. Now, the framework for the whole book is set rather obviously by the great events which dominate the first two chapters, Ascension and Pentecost. We have regularly misunderstood both. I once heard a sermon from uh, not a close colleague, but somebody I did work with, all about how the point of the Ascension was that Jesus has gone away and left us to our own devices, so now we've got to get on with the job. I remember sitting there thinking, uh, no, that's not what it's all about. We have imagined that the ascension means that Jesus is now somehow absent. And we've supposed that Pentecost is simply about the disciples having a spiritual shot in the arm to get them going. Well, there is a bit of truth in that, but again, we miss the point. Ascension and Pentecost link heaven and earth in a new and richer way than before. The point of Pentecost is that now at last there is a human being in the heavenly dimension, the point of Pentecost is that the breath of heaven is now active and fruitful on earth. Heaven and earth joined together. You need to get straight the biblical cosmology. I've been talking this week a bit about this. Our modern world is soaked in deism or modern forms of Epicureanism, imagining heaven as a distant, detached space, way beyond the blue, the old hymn says, separated from earth by a great ontological gulf. That's not how biblical cosmology works. In biblical cosmology, heaven is God's dimension of present reality. And in the ascension, heaven and earth are joined at last, as God always intended. And Jesus ascends not to be absent, but precisely to take the controls. In biblical thought, heaven is the CEO's office. That's the hub from which everything is run. And Jesus is there now as the ultimate human being, charged with operating God's new purposes. To establish his kingship over the world by the same methods he'd used in his public career, namely the methods and message of utter self-giving love. He must reign, as Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 15, citing Psalm 110, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. In other words, the answer to the question is yes, Jesus is already reigning. That's what the ascension is primarily all about. 
and he is doing so throughout Acts by the same means that he was operating in his public career. How will this be worked out? Well, through Pentecost. As I said, Pentecost now means that the breath of heaven, the strong, fiery wind of God's powerful love, is active in and on earth, in and through the lives and now the witness of Jesus' followers. Heaven and earth are joined together dynamically. Now, many things result from that, but one is this. As I was saying elsewhere yesterday, from Genesis 1 onwards, God's creation was designed as a temple. That is, a heaven plus earth reality with an image at its heart. Through Ascension and Pentecost, Jesus' followers are turned into the new version of this, the new temple, the place where heaven and earth meet. If you look up new temple in the New Testament, in some dictionary of theology, it will probably give you three Pauline references and one in 1 Peter and then some rather harder ones in Revelation. It probably won't say that the, new, the idea of the church as the new temple is absolutely central to Acts because with Ascension and Pentecost, heaven and earth have joined together and Jesus' followers are now living at that dangerous intersection. You see, the resurrection body of Jesus is the launch of new creation and the indwelling of the Spirit in his followers is its dynamic consequence. Acts is all about what happens when the self-giving, crucified Jesus is now in charge and his followers are energized to be the place where God now dwells on the earth. This is the heart of missiology. I suspect that many Anglican theologians, I'm thinking back through people like Michael Ramsey and William Temple in the last couple of generations or so, many Anglican theologians have intuited this from various angles without necessarily picking up this very Jewish framework in Acts. You see, when Luke writes that the fiery wind of the Spirit filled the place where Jesus' followers were gathered, that echoes the language of filling in Exodus 40 where the glorious divine presence fills the wilderness tabernacle, or 1 Kings 8 with Solomon's temple. Luke clearly sees this as part of the fulfillment of the promises in Ezekiel 43, that the divine glory would once again come and fill the house. That's what he says, that the, the rushing mighty wind filled the house where they were sitting. This is the coming of God. This is the new temple. So the mission of the church becomes, if you like, God's new temple project. So much about the biblical hope is about Israel's God promising to come and dwell in the midst of his people, focused on the post-exilic promise that God would come back in, his, in, his, in person after the exile to sort everything out. Acts is written on the assumption that that's precisely what's just happened with Jesus and the Spirit. And the mission of the church is to be the temple people together as church individually in our own discipleship. And I think this too is intuited in much Anglican life, which we confirm up biblically. In God's future, heaven and earth will be one, Revelation 21. That's the promise of both Testaments already fulfilled in Jesus and now the secret new reality of the Spirit. And the missionary call of the church from that day to this is to work towards that future to produce advanced signposts of that future, 
signs that the God of Israel has fulfilled and is fulfilling his promise to put the whole world right at last. One of the many signs of this is that when Peter, Paul and the others are explaining things to the crowds and in the synagogues, they regularly refer back to the scriptural promises of the coming kingdom of David. Jesus' resurrection was seen from very early on as his vindication as Davidic Messiah, Romans 1, 3 and 4. God had promised David that he and his seed would rule not only over an Israelite kingdom, but over the whole world. And that's the foundation for all Christian mission. The sense that Psalm 2, one of the favorites in the early church, has been fulfilled, where God says to the Messiah, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your possession, the uttermost parts of the earth for your inheritance. The church is tasked with following through on God's promise, announcing to the world, as Paul was accused of saying in Acts 17, that there is another king, namely Jesus. The church's mission then is not about grabbing a few souls from here and there so that they can escape from earth and land up in heaven instead. The mission of the church is to make the rule of King Jesus the wise, gentle, healing rule of his self-giving love a reality on earth as in heaven. Jesus already claims the world as his rightful domain and his witnesses from that day to this have the task of announcing that and living it in such a way as to make it a reality. Now, of course, we all know, and if we didn't, people would tell us as soon as we left this hall, that this can become greatly distorted. God forgive us for the times when the church has forgotten that it is Jesus who is ruling, not Caesar. And when we've tried to enforce Jesus' kingdom with Caesar's methods, that sadly has often happened within the established Church of England. If the leaders of some parts of the established Church of England hadn't been doing that in the 1660s, the entire history of North America might have been rather different, I think, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> but God forgive us also when reacting against that dangerous folly, we have turned to Plato and imagined that the kingdom is only in heaven and the sooner we go there, the better. Now, you see, that was somewhere where quite a few 19th century Anglican evangelicals wanted to go. No, the Davidic Messiah, demonstrated in the resurrection, instantiated in the ascension, is for the whole world. The church has made many mistakes in following that through, but that's no excuse for us not to try to do better. Now, the idea of the church as the new temple at once explains why most of the pressure points in Acts, most of the controversies, are to do with the churches coming up against existing temples, starting, of course, with the Jerusalem temple and its hierarchy. Stephen's speech in Acts 7 is ultimately all about the joining of heaven and earth through Jesus, resulting in the redundancy of the temple itself, which is why they end up throwing rocks at him. Paul's mission runs into trouble with several local shrines, culminating in the two great temple showdowns, which is what they are, in Athens and Ephesus. And then, of course, back in Jerusalem, the key question once again is about the gospel and the temple and the suspicion that the followers of Jesus are implying that the Jerusalem temple itself is redundant. 
And Acts is living in the, the tension between the existing Jerusalem temple and this new temple movement. And, and it's, it's not resolved in, in Acts itself. But looming over the whole narrative is the larger question, which, like Paul's final trial and death, is just off stage, the relationship between the gospel of Jesus and the gospel of Caesar. Because anyone conversant with the Roman Empire would know very well that a story about a leader who was now translated into the heavenly realm would stand in direct confrontation with the stories that have been told about Julius Caesar and most of his successors. They, after their death, had joined the pantheon. Caesar had become the deified Julius. Most, if not all, of the cities in Acts, apart from Jerusalem, had temples to Caesar and Rome. In the world of Jewish monotheism, of course, you couldn't just add new gods to the pantheon, but Jesus' ascension has thus put him, as the whole New Testament insists, on equal terms with God the Creator. And together they send the Spirit on his followers to make his newly gained sovereignty a reality in the world. Now, Acts, of course, doesn't use the word Trinity or any equivalent, but the mission of the church which it describes depends from start to finish on the reality to which that word points. And I think back to the Anglican tradition of patristic theology particularly and the many fine Anglican theologians who've explored that in all sorts of ways. Now, mention of Caesar points us to the other obvious implication of the Ascension, one which resonates throughout the book. Daniel chapter 7, frequently referred to in the New Testament, describes the moment when one like a son of man is exalted on the clouds to sit beside the Ancient of Days, passing judgment on the wicked monsters who have ravaged God's world. That provides an advanced interpretative grid for understanding several of the scenes throughout Acts, whether it's the apostles before the Sanhedrin or Paul facing an angry mob, so that there is actually a strong convergence between that apocalyptic vision in Daniel 7 and the thrust of Psalm 2, where the rulers of the nations rage and rant against God and his anointed, and God declares, by way of reply after he's laughed at them, that he has installed the Messiah, his son, as Lord of the world, and now demands their allegiance. That's how the narrative works. It's fascinating that the church prays that psalm in Acts 4. I'll come back to that. The whole book of Acts then, drawing on this central Old Testament theme, looks forward to the day when the kingdoms of the world will have become fully and completely the kingdom of God. And the mission of the church here is to live out in advance the reality of that future promise as best one can, trusting always through thick and thin in the exaltation of the Messiah, in the victory of the Son of Man. So if God's promised future is a new creation in which, as in Revelation and elsewhere, redeemed humans are called to be the royal priesthood, it's no surprise that the means of working forwards towards that is a human community, the beginnings of what we call the church. Luke gives us a sequence of sketches of this community, of which the first is in Acts 2, 41 to 47, where the believers share their property and they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, 
the word koinonia here refers to a sharing of goods as much as good wishes, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They are living as a single family, focused on Jesus and his death, invoking his presence and power, and in doing so are cutting across all differences of gender and social class, or indeed the ethnic fault lines which are already there between Greek-speaking Jewish Christians and Aramaic-speaking Jewish Christians, as in Act 6. That's the first problem they have to solve. The church has always been dealing with questions where ethnicity or near equivalent threatens to pull the church apart. So this alternative temple society overlaps confusingly with the existing temple. They still go and worship in the existing temple and then they station themselves beside one of the great gates. They are living under the rule of Jesus, celebrating the fullness of the Spirit, and already the Jerusalem authorities quite naturally feel this is disruptive. Who do these people think they are? Are they trying to upstage the present social and cultic order? Answer, yes, they are. And behind all this lies the question, who then was and is this Jesus in whose name they are doing extraordinary things? Because that's one of the things that we notice as we move from the two opening chapters of Acts into the rest of the first half of the book. Acts divides at the end of 12 and the beginning of 13. The community answers in its very existence and in, in its invoking of the powerful name of Jesus to heal the question of the kingdom. They're saying this is what it looks like when God becomes king. Yes, it's confusing. It wasn't what many of us had thought, but just as Jesus showed what he meant by God's kingdom, not least through powerful healings, so the church does the same in his name. That's a major theme in Acts, which then provides the opportunity to talk about who Jesus was and what he accomplished. Acts chapter 3 has a remarkable statement by Peter of Jesus as the prophet like Moses, the holy and just one, the author of life, who having been rejected and killed has been vindicated by God and will return to complete his work in the time of universal restoration. That's the parameter. That's working towards God's future. They've got the ultimate future in their sights and they say now, with Jesus having done what he did, we're going for it. This then gives us the shape of the missionary church, doing kingdom work, announcing the king himself, looking forward to the restoration when God will be all in all. God has promised to put the whole world right, as the Psalms and Isaiah make clear. The church is the place where God dwells fully in the present in order to anticipate in work and word the time when God will finally put it all right. I think the best of the Anglican tradition has glimpsed this way of putting it. Of course, again, the best of the Anglican tradition would also say that's the big picture, but of course because God is God, God is never imprisoned within the structures of the church. God is always out there on the street doing new things, and sometimes the church has to catch up with that, sometimes a bit slowly, but there we are. However, this remarkable Eschatology, of course, puts the church in conflict with the authorities. And this generates the saying which comes back once or twice, we must obey God rather than humans. A sentiment heard only seldom in the Church of England, alas. 
And at the heart of these fraught scenes, we find the church facing persecution. And as I said, invoking Psalm 2 to say we are the Messiah's people and to claim God's power against the Pontius Pilots and Herods of this world. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and do signs and wonders in the name of your holy child, Jesus. That's the missionary prayer for protection, for energy to speak, trust in God's power and in the name of Jesus to do the mighty works which demonstrate that God is already putting the world right. So in chapter 4 we have another little sketch of the life of the church, the New Testament, the, the, the New Temple people, the covenant people of God. That's the claim which Acts is advancing. And there, therefore, despite the fact that they don't seem to realize it at the beginning, the people through whom God reaches out to the wider world. Philip goes to Samaria and then off to see a traveling Ethiopian. Peter goes to the Gentile Cornelius and discovers that the taboo against eating with Gentiles is lifted. Now, we need to be very clear at this point. This is not because Peter has invented secular multiculturalism ahead of its time. It's because he's discovered the theological reality of which secular multiculturalism is at best a shaky parody. That when God cleanses the hearts of people through faith in the proclaimed word about Jesus, those people are not Gentile sinners anymore and they must be welcomed into the single family. That's exactly what Paul was explaining to Peter in Galatians 2 as well. This has a particular result which I'm fascinated by in chapter 11 and this still forms a challenge to missionary communities today. Antioch in Syria was a rich ethnic melting pot on the trade routes with people of all sorts. The church there, flourishing under the teaching of Barnabas and Saul, received a prophecy about an imminent famine. This struck me particularly two and a half years ago when the pandemic first arrived and people were panicking and some people were saying this was God's judgment on particular sins. Some people were saying it was the sign of the end of the world or whatever. The church in Antioch being told there was a major famine on the way didn't say, oh dear, we must have sinned or this is the fault of those other Christians who have sinned or this is all because of the wicked Roman Empire or maybe this is a sign that Jesus is coming back. No, they simply asked, who's going to be most at risk from this? How can we help? And who shall we send? And for the first time in human history, a multicultural community acting as a single family recognized with practical generosity another community of different ethnic origin, the one in Jerusalem, and different geographical location as part of the same family. Now, the Jewish people had behaved like that within their wider diaspora, supporting one another across geographical distance, but it was all within the ethnic group, the larger family. But for a community that was ethnically and socially diverse, radically so, to recognize their kinship with the impoverished and persecuted Jewish believers in Jerusalem and to turn that into practical help, wow. That's a sign of something totally new being born in the world. And the local onlookers invented a word for it. They called them Christianoi, Messiah people, because that was the word that they kept hearing, the new royal priesthood. Now, you might say at this point, 
that I'm supposed to be talking about mission and instead I'm talking about the church in itself. I think that's inevitable and it isn't just that we've all learnt about mission-shaped church, that the church must be shaped by mission. No, if the church is to be shaped by mission, mission itself must be shaped by eschatology. If you think eschatologically that the, the whole purpose is that saved souls need to go up to heaven, then that's all the mission you're going to be doing. But if you think that God is going to renew heaven and earth and hold them together, then the mission has to anticipate that. And this is always rooted in the community where it's already happening. So the church is itself part of the message. So if you read Rodney Stark's book on the rise of the early church, so many people became Christians because they saw something different, a different way of being human, and they wanted to know what it was about. It was attractive and compelling. The church in the present is supposed to be a pointer to God's future, and mission takes place along that line. Again, I think Anglicans have often intuited this, but rarely spelt out its biblical foundations. I was talking about this a few months ago with an old friend, a leading American biblical scholar, and he said that my picture of the early church reminded him of a passage in one of C.S. Lewis's science fiction stories, Perilandra, sometimes also known as Voyage to Venus. In the opening scenes, the narrator is confronted with what he learns is an Eldil, a messenger from another world, an angel sort of, but it doesn't look like an angel in popular imagination. It looks like a shining rod, a straight ray of light. Initially, it appears that this rod is set at an angle to our world, slanting this way or that, but then the onlooker realizes that it's the other way round. The Eldil is straight up, and it's our world that's crooked. Lewis is making the point which I think emerges exactly here in Acts. The early church is the agent and embodiment of the mission of God because it is living straight up while the rest of the world is on a slant. Of course, the rest of the world doesn't see it like that, but that's how Luke knows it is. And this already points us to a reflection from the first half of Acts. Uh, so I spent most of this lecture on the first half, that's okay. We live in a world which we call the modern West, where the Enlightenment has tried to create a genuine human community built on justice and reason and freedom, but leaving out of the equation the whole question of the kingdom of God. God has been banished a long way upstairs, thanks to deism and Epicureanism, we're going to sort everything out downstairs ourselves from now. And the church gets elbowed out of the way. The secular world sees the church as irrelevant. We're going to put the world right by our own efforts. Well, how's that been going, by the way? The last three centuries of wars and turbulence and now major moral, social and political confusion have posed a severe question mark against that Enlightenment dream. But the churches have often, by and large, colluded with that agenda, agreeing, okay, we'll teach people to pray and we'll show them how to get their souls into heaven, and you guys all... I've heard this said by clergy. We leave all that stuff to the social workers. We're in the business of saving souls. And in particular, in countries where a church-state split has been formalized, though these things are more complicated than people sometimes suppose, the collusion is all the easier. Okay, the state does the state things and the church will just do churchy things, uh, whatever that is, religion, spirituality. 
And this in turn reinforces, of course, the perception that the church is irrelevant. In striking contrast, we should say, to churches in many parts of Africa, Latin America and elsewhere, and of course many splendid churches in the West as well, where devoted followers of Jesus are equally devoted to the needs and care of the poor and so on. I don't think there is any one Anglican position in all of this. We've wobbled about this way and that, but there are some proud, noble Anglican traditions of doing the thing, of bucking the system, of not allowing the Enlightenment to say that all that stuff working with society is off limits. But the church, however, is called to be the reality and the generating source of that reality which the world is trying to reach by other means. You will only get true multicultural harmony if Jesus is in the middle, the crucified and risen Jesus imparting his spirit to his people. And it's precisely at such points when the church is doing something that the world can't do that we will need to know when and how to say we must obey God rather than human authorities. Think of the wise, noble, brave Christians fighting against apartheid in South Africa in the 60s and 70s. Of course, saying we're going to obey God, not human authorities, can just be a cheap and cheerful way of settling for some kind of low-grade anarchy over against the ordered society which you happen not to like. Uh, a cheerful radicalism which is just as much a failure as the tyranny it rejects. But if and when there come times, and we are approaching such times in my country now, when the secular state tries to impose something on the church, which goes against the missionary imperative to be working for God's ultimate future in the present, the church needs to learn once again how to say no. Failure to do that will be the failure of the mission. You see, all through, the church's call is to be the pilot project for new creation. I'll be saying more about this, God willing, in the last lecture tomorrow morning. But the point is that new creation affirms the goodness of the present creation while magnificently transcending it and rescuing it in ways which we presently can hardly imagine. And the church becomes the missionary church as it learns to stand at the threshold right there, working towards God's ultimate future. Because if the whole creation is to be filled with God's glory as the waters cover the sea, then the filling of God's people with his spirit in the present is the advance, sign, and foretaste, and even partial means of that ultimate reality. And reminding earthly authorities of their actual God-given duties and responsibilities, especially if they're threatening to exceed their proper boundaries, is one aspect of that missionary responsibility, to be worked out on the ground in many different contexts from place to place. You see Paul doing that in the second half of Acts, constantly telling the authorities what they should and shouldn't be doing. And of course they get their cross about it, but they actually know he's right. Think of Philippi where he's uh, arrested, beaten, thrown into jail, all the rest of it. Next morning after the earthquake, the authorities say, tell those guys to get out of town. And Paul says, excuse me, Roman citizens um, arrested um, without charge, beaten without trial, jailed, da 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 Sounds like a public apology. And he gets it. Um, as I say in the biography, Paul must have been a very high-maintenance friend. Um, <laughs> If, if I'd been Silas, I'd have said, hey, cut it, let's, let's just go. But, but no, Paul, Paul believed in justice. 
He believed in demonstrating the God of justice and holding the authorities to their proper God-given rule. Anyway, I go on about that. Um, <laughs> because there is at that point almost a political natural theology where we recognize that even secular authorities perhaps know in their bones that they have a responsibility to do justice and maintain good order. That can be a pointer towards the ultimate justice of God without them being actually able to produce it. So my theme for many months now in my work has been, and I make no apology for repeating this all this week, that the church is called to be the small working model of new creation. And this too looks right back to the tabernacle and the temple. Their purpose came true, close up and deeply personal in Jesus himself, and then it is to come true in the church, filled with the Spirit, to be the place where and the means by which God is now active and at work in the world, leading the way to new creation, despite the desperate efforts of the old creation to strike back. All that is on vivid display in Acts. I think Anglican missiology at its best has pointed in this sort of direction. Now, as I say, so far I've concentrated on the first half of this great book. I just want to say now three things from the second half which may be of particular relevance to Anglican mission right now. First, come with me to chapter 15, where the apostles gather in Jerusalem for the first great church conference, council, call it what you will, to hammer out the question of Gentile inclusion in the church. This is often misunderstood today, not least in church debates, Anglican debates. The council in Jerusalem did not embrace an earlier version of a free-for-all pluralism, of an inclusiveness without boundaries. The reason the devout Jewish believers were anxious about the inclusion of Gentiles was because Gentiles were idolaters, and idolatry is infectious and seriously bad for your health. And the answer from the council was not that Israel's Torah, which kept Jews and Gentiles separate, was bad or regressive or restrictive, and we should all do our own thing. The answer from the council was certainly not that, oh, well, idolatry is all right now, or at least not quite, bad as we used to th quite as bad as we used to think. Rather, the point, back to Peter and Cornelius, was that because of Jesus and the Spirit, non-Jews who believed in Jesus and had received the Spirit could at last be incorporated into a family of monotheism and purity which honors God's creation as it's meant to be. Paganism treats creation as a toy to be manipulated rather than a gift to be appropriately celebrated. The church is to be the community where Israel's Torah finds a new kind of fulfillment. It's noteworthy, let the reader understand, that the council's letter which encourages Gentile membership without the need for circumcision was emphatic in maintaining the line on sexual morality. People have often said that as part of a missionary imperative, we must sit loose to traditional law norms but part of the attraction of the church in every century, not least I find today, has been precisely its rejection of pagan behavior, which is so regularly exploitative, particularly of vulnerable women and young people. Very interesting, in the second century, the great pagan doctor Galen, in his writings, he mentions the Christians once. He doesn't know much about them. 
He knows two things about them on, the, on both grounds of which he thinks they're crazy. One, they believe in the resurrection of the body. Two, they don't sleep around. Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't it be nice if the church was known for those two things today? But, but Galen respects them because he knows they, they stick to their beliefs. And of course, the two go together. If you believe that the body is basically good and to be raised from the dead, you will treat it quite differently from if you see it as a piece of trash to be exploited. That's my first point, which I think is very relevant for all sorts of discussions, not least in missiology today. Second, in Acts 14, and then particularly in the great scene in Athens, in Acts chapter 17, we see Paul explicitly confronting the pagan philosophies. The speech on the Areopagus in particular has been very important in missiology. And here traditional Anglican mission practice has divided. I think of the opposing attitudes of the USPG, the Anglo-Catholic mission in the 19th and 20th century, and CMS, the evangelical one. USPG would go to an area, uh, I'm generalizing, but you'll see the point, and they would tend to look for aspects of the local culture on which the gospel might be built. You know, you're sort of halfway there, let's just help you move on a bit. CMS would tend to see the local culture as basically pagan and sinful and needing to be replaced with a Christian one. Well, in Athens, Paul was on trial, by the way. The Areopagus wasn't a debating society. It was the Supreme Court of the city-state. He's been accused of bringing foreign divinities into town, which was part of the charge that got Socrates killed. So what's Paul going to say? At this point, USPG reading of Acts 17 might say, well, Paul starts with the altar to the unknown God. Isn't that great? You're reaching out after God. Let me tell you about him. And then he quotes the pagan poets. We are also God's offspring. Isn't that wonderful? He's building up from what's already there in the culture. And uh, then the, the, the CMS missionary might say, hang on, the real thrust of the, pe of the speech is denouncing pagan temples as a category mistake. From the hill of the Areopagus, some of you may have been there, you look across to the Acropolis where you've got the amazing Parthenon, and the temple to Athene, and the temple to Nike, and several other temples. And Paul says, they're all a waste of space. And all that stuff about bringing them sacrifices, that's a waste of time. And he ends up announcing a basically Jewish message, very strange to Greek ears, that history is actually going somewhere. The God who made the world has a plan. And that's leading up to a day when he will judge the world. And then Paul provides a real slap in the face because the judge through whom God will do this is a human being whom he's raised from the dead. In the founding charter of the Areopagus, in one of Aeschylus' plays, Resurrection is specifically denied, and Paul stands there confronting them. So who is right, USPG or CMS? I think actually they both are, and of course saying that is a typical Anglican fudge in itself. Um, <laughs> in Paul's speech, which is no doubt a highly truncated version of what he actually said, I mean you can read that speech in two and a half minutes, you're not going to tell me that Paul, faced with the Areopagus, is just going to speak for two and a half minutes. I mean, this is a man who could preach people to death, think about people falling out of windows and so on. Um, so he navigates through the great philosophies. Yes, the Stoics are right to say, we too are his offspring, but we're not pantheists. God and the world are radically distinct. Yes, the Epicureans are right to say that God is higher and greater than the world, but they are wrong to suppose that there is no commerce between them. 
On the contrary, God wants people to reach out and find him. Yes, the academics and the cynics are right to say there hasn't really been enough evidence we can't make up our minds. But now the true God has unveiled his plan by raising Jesus from the dead. This is a masterpiece of cultural and philosophical navigation. It's a model for missionary apologetics. You can only chart that kind of course if you really know your own message and have thought through how it lands in the complex world of the human culture and philosophy where you happen to be. And of course, underneath all of this is a theology of creation and fall with the USPG line rightly stressing the goodness of creation and the CMS line rightly stressing the damaging effects of the, poor, of the fall. I think that Anglican missiology at its best has tried to navigate, as Paul did, a course that takes account of both. My third and final vignette from the second half of the book is Acts 27, the magnificent shipwreck scene. Now think about how Luke has composed the book. In his gospel, the storyline leads right up to chapter 23, which is the crucifixion of Jesus. Massive, huge. The story in Acts leads us right up to, well, Paul is coming to Jerusalem and people are warning that if he goes there, they're going to kill him. So the reader might think, oh, is Paul going to die in the same way? But no, the shipwreck scene takes the place in Acts of the crucifixion scene in Luke. And Luke here has echoed the great stories of the sea monster, whether the tale of Jonah or the apocalyptic nightmare of Daniel 7. This is the moment when the gospel, in order to get to Rome as Jesus had promised, has to go through the Jewish equivalent of death, namely the mighty waters threatening to close over them, the terrible attacks and troubles. So Luke is saying, and I think this may be a word for many churches at the present time, keep your eyes on the missionary mandate, on the call to bring the gospel of Jesus to the world, don't be surprised if, just at the moment critique, storms arise which threaten to sink the ship on the way. The shipwreck story has all kinds of moments when everything might have gone horribly wrong, including the soldiers wanting to kill all the prisoners in case they escape. But they are rescued. Very interesting in the Greek. Several times Luke uses the word for saved. They are saved. They are completely saved. They land up saved on land. And as I look out at worldwide Anglicanism just now, facing all kinds of challenges, that's my prayer, that despite what seems like shipwreck here and there, and dangers of many kinds, we will all come safely to land. Of course, a cynic from the other side of the Tiber might say, well, the point of Acts is they all arrived safely in Rome, and perhaps that's what we should do. Well, you won't be surprised to know that I'm not recommending that route. <laughs> So, conclusion. The missiology which I discern in Acts is rooted in the scriptural hope that the kingdom of the Davidic Messiah is now the whole world. Paul and the others don't make it so. The ascension has already made it so. Pentecost sends them out to tell the world in deeds of power and then in explanation what is already in fact the case and to summon the nation's to allegiance. I'm not sure that many Anglican missionaries have seen it quite like that, but the vision of faithful presence, of establishing communities that are living around a life of worship and common shared life, 
Um, that uh, has been important. And of course, with a long-established church like my own in England, the danger comes from the other end, that people have assumed that church and society are so melded together that the church, church must just stay in step with whatever society wants to do. That's a disastrous position leading to the worst kinds of Erastianism. No, we must obey God rather than human authorities. Yeah, sometimes hot-headed radicals have quoted that in support of a crazy new plan, but equally, sometimes church leaders have been slow to say it when it needed to be said. But the challenge of the Areopagus speech is, I think, one which we recognize in our specifically Anglican debates. Our missiology has, in fact, often reflected larger theological debates about grace and nature. Does grace perfect nature? or does it abolish it? Or perhaps does it perfect it through cross and resurrection? I think that's what Luke would say. Perhaps we need to make that theological connection a bit more explicit and invite contributions from those who've worked at different bits of the front line and have different experiences of how different strategies have worked out. That's all to play for. But for now, I commend to you the Lucan vision of the ascended Jesus and the descending spirit God coming to fill the house, calling the church to be the small working model of new creation. And we could do worse than to ask the question in relation to our mission and also to the church's internal life. What might that now look like in practice? Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Wright, for that inspiring, challenging, and encouraging message on the church's mission. Uh, we want to be conscious of time, and we want to offer um, an opportunity for people who have come here tonight to ask Dr. Wright some questions. Uh, we have a microphone there in both uh, this side and that side of the auditorium. So if you want to kind of think for a moment, and if you'd like to come forward and ask Dr. Wright a question about his talk or maybe... Uh, any of his writings that he's written. Um, Dr. Wright, as we're kind of taking a minute, I'm reminded your writings have impacted thousands of people around the world, and not everyone here tonight is an Anglican. And I'm curious, uh, selfishly, because we are hosting you tonight, uh, what is it about the Anglican tradition, perhaps, that has really formed and shaped your own worldview, um, and your own writings, because they have resonated with so many people who are coming from a variety of backgrounds. What it is about your Anglican heritage? It's interesting. I mean, I, I was born and bred an Anglican. My parents and grandparents were all um, good old-fashioned Church of England folk in the north of England, and uh, that, that's just how I was formed, and particularly by the Book of Common Prayer because I sang in a church choir from the age of seven, and so I learned a lot of the Psalms, because you do, and the Magnificat and the Benedictus and so on. This is all part of who I became from an early, from an early age. And of course, at that stage, you don't really reflect on it. It's looking back now, now that I've been literally and metaphorically around the world and back again, and met many Christians from widely different backgrounds, that I discovered that the Anglican church has perhaps accidentally, I don't think anyone meant it like this, had a ministry of holding the ring, of standing in the middle somewhere, of being able to understand and be understood by both the free church friends and the Catholic, and particularly the Orthodox friends. In fact, Anglicans 
and Eastern Orthodox folk often seem to have quite a lot in common. So that Anglicans have been very active in ecumenical work because we do seem to overlap in all sorts, which is hardly surprising since it's very explicit in the Anglican formularies that the, that the Bible is the center of what we're supposed to be about. I mean, well, the Trinity is the center of what we're supposed to be about and the Bible is the hermeneutic means by which we, we uh, understand all of that. And that since that is common across the Christian traditions, we can, as it were, hold the ring. And that joke which I started with about Anglicans having no theology of their own, there is a grain of truth in that. The 39 Articles are not a dogmatic statement like the Westminster Confession. They're simply sketching out some parameters for what needed to be said to keep things on track in the, in the late 16th and early 17th century. Um, and, and so rather than an attempt to say everything all the time, so I think there has been a peculiar ministry of that. And certainly for myself, what I intuited as somebody who felt, who felt called to be in ministry and then called to work as a theologian was that I just wanted to study the Bible as best I could and see what happened when I came back and told the church what I was finding out. And of course, I've tried to do that. Not everybody likes it. But the, the great thing about the Anglican church is that you can grow and develop and move a bit this way. And I've had friends in other churches who, because they've started to think certain thoughts and explore certain pathways, have been almost physically kicked out of churches or sacked from ministries or forced to change denominations. Now, the danger with Anglicanism is then it becomes so loose as to have no boundaries at all, um, which is, is not how it's classically formed. But at least if you say that the Bible and the Fathers as pointing to Jesus, they are where we're basically at, rather than later 16th century, 17th, 18th, 19th century formulations. It gives you the flexibility to learn and grow and mature, and also to make mistakes. Um, but that's fine. So I've, I've been very happy within that framework, although I, I believe me, I see its weaknesses um, and the dangers that having that openness can produce. In a room the size, I know there are some people that would like to ask Dr. Wright some questions, so we'll start over here. At the risk of being a little cheeky, I want to ask you the same question that you just asked us. What will this look like in practice? And uh, sorry, you're speaking rather fast, and, the, and the, the, there's this distortion coming out of the thing, so I, I want to hear what you're saying. No yeah. problem. At the risk of being slightly cheeky, I wanted to ask you the same question that you just asked us. What will this look like in practice? perhaps maybe in Southeast Asia, how would this look? Yeah, um, it's going to vary enormously from place to place. When I was Bishop of Durham, I had 250 parishes spread over some very deep industrial wasteland in the east of the county and some in the farming communities, some very poverty-stricken communities, some relatively affluent. It's going to look different in each of those communities. And that's just in one little bit of the northeast of England. And so it, th th this isn't a way of escaping the question. It's just saying there is no easy one side. I'm not saying, in other words, if only all churches ran alpha courses every year, everything would be wonderful. Though, frankly, if some churches sometimes do, that's really rather nice. As a bishop, you get far more confirmation candidates from there than, than elsewhere. Um, I, I'm not being flippant, but um, the, 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 um, the sense of faithful presence of establishing a community in that place who are serving the local community, and that will look very differently according to what sort of a community it is, so that people recognize, even if, even if the local council officials are themselves mostly atheists, they may say, those folk in the church seem to know what's going on here. We better ask them um, about the housing crisis here or about um, uh, 
drug rehab programs or whatever. And when the church is doing that stuff, then people do take notice, like the people in Antioch who, who invented a word for them. You know, they're, they're, they're Messiah people, they're Jesus people, they're Christianoi. So, so, but it's the, it's the, the centered worshipping community which flowing from that worship precisely because it's worshipping the God we see in Jesus is determined to serve the community in whatever needs they've got. That, that's at the heart of it. Sh should we take alternate microphones? Thank you very much. Yes. As someone who serves in a historic Episcopal church in northern Kentucky, um, and to give a rough quote to you uh, of what you said, Anglican mission starts with an incarnational presence living together in the midst of a population. That was my rough transcript of your quote. Um, as a bishop who served a very historic diocese, what would that look like to renew that missional presence in a local parish life? What would it look like, sorry, to... Uh, just your last sentence again. The last sentence, yes. You said, what would it look like? What would it look like, via your experience in a historic diocese, to renew that missional presence? Yeah. It, it, again, it, it, there's no one-size-fits-all, because um, I have seen the, the presence of a church radically renewed when, after sometimes years of prayer for a particular church in a particular town, God puts his hand on somebody calls them to work in that place, and suddenly all sorts of things happen which weren't happening before. Um, but renewal takes many forms. And I've seen, you know, th that one I was thinking of was uh, a charismatic evangelical who went to a church that had never had any ministry like that before, and it just so happened that he arrived and was starting work there just when our delightful government decided that his town was one of the places they were going to dump asylum seekers at five o'clock in the morning off a bus. Um, and his church members went and met them off the bus and found out what they needed and healthcare and so on. And it was quite extraordinary that he came to the thing for such a time as this, who knew? Equally, I've seen people in radically different traditions, in liberal Catholic traditions, who've gone into old mining areas where um, there's no money anymore because all the businesses have gone and the banks have shut and there's lots and lots and lots of poor people and have started the faithful presence ministry of, of, of having a building which served by the church members, which is doing um, um, financial advice, which is doing health care, which is doing mothers and toddlers stuff. Um, and again, the local authorities take notice. What, what's happening on the high street? Oh, it's those funny people from the church. They decided um, that they would get together and do this. And it sends a signal of hope into a community. I, I could go on. I mean, those are just two examples of many. But this is, this is the kind of thing. And so you never know what, what it's going to be, which is why part of the faithful presence thing is to be people in prayer at all the places, that's why the parish system is, is in principle so good, because no square inch of my country is left without being part of a parish. Now, parishes are good and bad and indifferent, but that's the principle. People in prayer there may sense the local need and may sense how they can meet it, like the church in Antioch saying, something needs to be done here, how are we going to do it? Yeah, thank you. Dr. Wright, you said that we so often attempt to bring the reign of Jesus through the strategy of Caesar. 
And of course, the relationship of the church and state has been different in the UK than in the US. But in your opinion, is it possible for Christians to engage with government and the public sphere while still being allegiant to Jesus? And how do we avoid syncretism while we try to bring the kingdom on earth? Yeah, that's a great question. And of course, it does relate to the Areopagus speech where um, some people hearing Paul say the altar to the unknown God might have said, oh my goodness, you know, Paul, what are you getting into? Um, don't you know that, that some people regard that unknown God as somebody quite different? How can you make that connection? Um, and it seems to me there is always that risk and the prayerful discernment of which points you can actually link arms with is, is, should be what it's all about. Um, I've tried to categorize this when I've been thinking about um, exactly your question in terms of the two things we have to do. One is uh, to collaborate without compromise and the other is to disagree without dualism. To collaborate without compromise, in other words, if the local authority or the government or whoever is saying we really want to help these poor people, church, we, we want to do that too. And actually we've got form on this. We've been doing it for 2000 years. So perhaps we can get together and, and, and often the local authorities will be only too glad to have the church's help. But at a certain point, some people in the local authority may say, of course, as we do this, we also want to do X, Y, and Z, Z, sorry, which, um, <laughs> um, which, um, uh, which the church will say, we don't actually do that stuff. And th that, you know, then you need wisdom and clarity and preferably you need to have got to know personally the local authorities ahead of time so that there is actually a friendship there. This is the same with interfaith work, by the way, that you've got to get to know the local leaders of Jewish communities, Muslim communities, etc., 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 so that it's a good thing to do anyway, but if there is a crisis, if there's a, a terrorist action or something, it's really important for the Christian leaders and the Muslim leaders to be able to come out on the street linking arms and saying, not in our name. And that doesn't mean you're compromising. It means you're, you're being wise and humane. So collaborate without compromise and critique um, without dualism and, or, or disagree without dualism. In other words, if you're gonna say that this present policy of this present government is wrong, then argue the case, but don't imply that they're satanic. I mean, it's always possible that sooner or later in the last analysis, there might be something really dark going on. Normally, it's, they're misguided. They're following a policy which has grown out of whatever. But so, so to disagree in such a way as not to poison the wells so that you can still continue the conversation. And these two things, the collaborating without compromise and the disagreeing without dualism, have got to be navigated in every situation. But as long as you've got the fact that those are two things which you're likely to have to do, then you can at least start, start the work, start the conversation. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, Dr. Wright. I hope you're doing well tonight. Uh, I just want to ask, how do we apply the idea of new creation and the kingdom of God with the practice of the sacraments and also with comforting people with... Uh, for? Oh, and for comforting people who have uh, lost loved ones. Yeah, that sentence that ended up with lost loved ones. Oh, how do we apply the new creation and the kingdom of God with the sacraments and with comforting people who have lost loved ones? Comforting people or comforting you? Com okay, comforting, okay. Sorry. yes. It's the distortion of the speakers I didn't hear. Um, yeah. 
the, the, the Anglican tradition has always been a richly sacramental tradition. Unlike some Protestant churches which were so frightened about the Roman Catholic abuses of sacraments as it was seen in the 16th century, the Anglican tradition has, has said, no, th this is absolutely central. Um, and uh, the breaking of bread and prayers is right there in the beginning of Acts. Um, th this, is, this is what they do. And as Anglican theologians have, have wrestled with the meaning of the Eucharist, I think that's one of the great things, again, about the Anglican latitude on that topic. By the way, I've heard again and again in America that, of course, Queen Elizabeth said that you can believe what you like and it doesn't matter. That's not true. What Queen Elizabeth said was that you can believe what you like about the mode of Christ's presence in the Eucharist because she could see that, you know, that was a, a major fault line for some people. Um, and so making a home for people with different views, because that's not what it's about. What it's about is, um, I'll give you a whole lecture on sacramental theology, wouldn't that be fun? That the sacraments are points at which um, the fact that the church is living at the intersection of the present and the future and of the present, the present world and the age to come, that becomes a close-up and personal reality in the sacraments. Um, and within the Anglican tradition, again, that's often been intuited more than articulated. Um, but so, so the, the, the sacraments are part of the means by which we do this, um, part of the means. I mean, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. And that doesn't mean that a Eucharist is a good moment to have a sermon about Jesus' death, though it is, but that's not the point. When you do it, you are declaring it to the community. And in some ministry situations I've been in, when there's been particularly difficult things and awkward people and so on, I have found that the daily Eucharist um, was a matter, a, a way of being able to say to the community in, in action, actually Jesus is Lord here. And then, sigh of relief, we can now go and deal with the problem. Um, and, and I think that I know many Anglicans and many others as well, of course, would resonate with that. In terms of comforting people who've died, I mean, the Anglican Church has always had a major pastoral ministry too, um, uh, the, the bereaved, etc. Um, it is important that we do that right and I worry that many Anglican churches now have unthinkingly taken on the rather modern Roman Catholic practice of All Souls Day, which I think goes back to the 13th century, so it is quite modern really. Um, uh, you know, in other words, this wasn't an early thing because All Souls Day separates the saints who've made it to heaven and the souls who haven't and there's no biblical warrant for that at all. This is a whole other topic which I've written about in various places. Um, and when I was a lad, in quite a high Anglican church, Easter Day was the time when people came with lists of people that they wanted remembering and bringing uh, lilies to, to, to place um, in the sanctuary and so on. And to, to banish that to All Souls Day and then to imply that's rather a gloomy thing, you know, not saying we really believe in purgatory, but it feels like that sort of thing. Um, so I, I, I really, there are some issues there to be addressed. Yeah. A lot of Christians in America feel anxiety about America starting to feel post-Christian. And there's a variety of responses to that. And one has been trying to keep our hands on the political steering, steering wheel and have one political party in power, Christian nationalism. My question is, what would you say to Christians in America that feel like the mission of the church succeeds or fails based on which party's in power? It looks very odd from a 
perspective of the other side of the Atlantic, there's a country which um, instantiated a church-state split in its constitution would ever get to that position. Now, th there, there, are, there are all sorts of oddities about that. We have plenty of oddities in England. I'm not saying we got it right and everybody else, far from it. Um, but it seems to me that there are multiple confusions going on there and different Christian traditions within America um, would see those things very differently because it tends to be one particular kind of American Christian, I think, who would, who would see it like that. Um, if you have, whether you have a democracy or, or something else, the idea that this sort of government is the Christian government it just doesn't sit well with anything in the Bible or the early Christian tradition. It's very interesting that the early Christians, like the Jews of the same period, when they thought about governing authorities, they didn't much mind how such people had got into power, because there were many ways by which that could happen and they couldn't affect that. They did mind what these people did once they'd got power. We do it the other way. We assume, because we're 18th century um, rationalists, that democracy must get us the best of what we're going to get at the moment. So once we've voted people in, they then do what they like, and they say, I have a mandate to this. Now, the early church was quite clear that you critique the governing authorities, like Jews would, um, on what they're actually doing, never mind how they got there. So all this would need to be teased out, and this, this is a major problem. And um, you know, the idea of Christian nationalism or, or making America Christian again or something. And the idea of calling it post-Christian is far too broad brush anyway. There's, there's many, many other strands going on. We have lived in a much more post-Christian world in Britain, but there is still a whole lot of gospel at work. You know, God has not given up on, on France or Italy or, or England or whatever yet. So I think, I think the, the, po the point is being posed in an oversimple way, not by you, but by the people you're referring to. And we need to complexify it and lay it out a bit more and lay it on the template of early Christian views of what ruling authorities are there for, see what happens. So, sorry, we're nearly out of time, so I think we... Hi, good evening. Um, thank you for whoever set the mic up that I don't have to lower it. Um, I have two, two big questions, and I, they're ones that I've grappled with for many years. I will ask them both, and if you can pick one that you would like to answer, I would appreciate it. Sir, um, the first, of course, is the, the big problem of, of evil and suffering, and, and I've come up with different ways of answering and rationalizing it, and ultimately, it's the same elemental question of whether, of how I trust the Lord and the salvation history and the new creation. And my question is always, is my lack of trust or faith or immaturity in relationship, is it, does it have to do with his power? Does it have to do with his goodness? Does it have to do with just my total misunderstanding and not understanding of, of time? And so I, I keep going back and forth in that what typically is, what typically is the issue under, underneath, underneath people always asking and grappling with the problem of suffering, even though we know the rational answers. So there's that. And then over here is Paul and, um, and women. And I have, I thank you for helping me 
to thank you for redeeming Paul for me um, um, as, as a part of that. But I understand the contextualization of things, um, of things in Scripture versus now. But I've always had a struggle with, um, in Ephesians, right? Yeah, Ephesians, um, with the ontological question of um, husband being head over the wife um, as, as Christ is head of, like ontologically, I struggle with that because that's beyond contextualization. So those are really the two big questions I deal with all the time. So if you could pick one to answer, that would be great. Thank you. Classic moments. The clock is saying 8.59, which means I have one minute to answer two of the biggest questions. And, and, well, and this, the second one, I've written a bit about that. There's an article in my book, Surprised by Scripture, about the role of women in church, etc. I'm not going to solve Pauline um, gender ontology at this time of night. The question of suffering obviously is massive. It's very interesting that it seems to have been posed in the 18th century in quite different ways to how it was posed before because all the great Christian teachers from the time of Jesus and Paul right through to the 18th century knew plenty, probably more than we do, about the suffering of the world. I mean, think of a world before modern medicine, etc., etc. Often a pretty nasty place. But the question of why does God allow it or what's it all about didn't occur to people in that way until the 18th century when the prevailing deism invents God who is a, a, a celestial boss and then accuses him of incompetence. You know, like Woody Allen said, um, yes, I do believe in God, but he's a bit of an underachiever. In other words, God should be sorting this out. And the question of what is the world all about and how, how is it to be sorted out ought to be addressed Trinitarianly. And the trouble with the way that we've addressed it is that we leave Jesus and the Spirit out of the discussion and we assume we can address it simply in terms of God the Father who then gets conceived as a deist, distant manager, a kind of a faceless bureaucrat. Um, when you start to tell the story of Jesus, which demands the story of Israel as well, then you see, of course, the whole world of suffering and pain and evil is there in the Old Testament, it's there in the New, and it's then concentrated on Jesus. And the early Christians would say, we haven't got a major answer as to why this happened in the first place. What we do have is the fact of God incarnate coming and standing in the midst, and then of the church's vocation in the power of the Spirit to be, Romans 8, the people of prayer at the place where the world is in pain, in order that thus God may work towards the time when creation itself will be redeemed from its bondage to decay. So you, if we only ask the question with leaving Jesus and the Spirit out, um, we'll just get this 18th century problem, which wasn't a problem before in, the, in, in church history. You know, suffering has always been a problem, but not like that. If we then factor Jesus and the Spirit back in, the whole conversation looks and feels different and comes back to us to say what you're going to do about it um, and in, in the power of the Spirit. Um, that's probably as good as I can do at 9 o'clock at night, but um, I hope, that, hope that's all right. Give Dr. Wright a hand. Thank, thank you, Dr. Wright, for tonight.